0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our region, the nation, and the world. This week we present Phyllis Benes of the Institute for Policy Studies, who talks about the massive protests by Israelis against their extremist government's anti democracy agenda and the disconnect between those opposition activists and the oppression of the Palestinian people. Will Falk, an activist and attorney, who explains why indigenous groups and conservationists oppose the construction of what would be the nation's largest lithium mine at Thacker Pass in northern Nevada. And Nicole Cardi, executive director of the Gen Z activist movement Get Free, who discusses her group's recent protest and civil disobedience actions in Washington, D.C. after a succession of regressive Supreme Court rulings. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: Tensions are rising in Asia as Japan plans to release up to 1 million tons of radioactive wastewater from the crippled Fukushima nuclear complex into the Pacific Ocean. The plant's nuclear reactors were destroyed by a massive earthquake and tsunami that struck Japan in 2011. While the International Atomic Energy Agency says the release plan meets international standards, South Koreans are protesting the radioactive water release. China criticized the Atomic Energy Agency report and announced it would continue to ban food imports from Fukushima and nearby regions. While Japan won backing for the wastewater release plan from the U.S., a group of marine biology and radiochemistry experts say the Atomic Energy Agency's assessment is by no means comprehensive and they note that the current lack of data raises questions over Japan's handling of the wastewater disposal. Foreign Policy Magazine reports that Ken Buesler, a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, urged Japan to consider alternatives to their wastewater dumping plan. He proposed solidifying the wastewater into concrete, which would trap radioactive tritium in the water and could then be used to expand the seawall that would serve as a tsunami barrier. In May, a bill to divest $15 billion in fossil fuel company assets from California's public pension fund was passed by the state Senate. But the legislation faces an uncertain outcome in California's state assembly. Already, the state of Maine and 52 communities in the U.S. have divested from oil, gas, and coal companies, including the cities of Oakland, San Diego, and San Jose. Opposing the California measure, however, are Republican lawmakers, the state's powerful petroleum lobby, and managers of the public pension funds that the bill targets, who argue the proposed change threatens millions of residents' hard-earned retirement money. A delay in the bill's progress has shown how steadfast that opposition is, even in a deeply blue state like California. But Stateline News reports Dan Cohen of the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis says the divestment bill would actually protect pension funds from the increased risk of investing in volatile fossil fuel stocks in coming years. With growing climate regulation and competitive green alternative energy sources, Cohen says fossil fuel firms will become longer-term underperformers. New York progressive Mondaire Jones is on the comeback trail. The former one-term congressman is running to win back his Hudson Valley House seat that he was forced out of by Sean Patrick Maloney, a powerful centrist Democrat who ran in Jones's 17th district in 2022 and lost to Republican Mike Lawler. Jones, one of the first openly gay black members of Congress, was a former staffer in the Obama administration's Justice Department. As a member of the House Judiciary Committee, he led an effort to expand the size of the U.S. Supreme Court, attacking the extremist conservative majority as hostile to democracy itself. Jones proposed an expansion of the high court by four seats and an end to the Senate filibuster, so that President Biden could appoint progressive justices to the new positions. In his 2024 campaign, Jones is promoting abortion rights, gun safety, and fighting corruption. To run for his old district seat, Jones will first have to defeat primary challenger centrist Democrat Liz Whitmer-Garrity, the sister of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But Jones is starting strong with endorsements from more than 100 local elected officials and party chairs, along with five key state legislators. If he wins the primary, he'll face vulnerable Republican Mike Lawler in November. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: After 29 weeks of massive protests across Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's far-right ultra-religious coalition government defied opponents and passed a law limiting the powers of Israel's Supreme Court, the first step in a larger judicial overhaul plan that opponents say will undermine Israeli democracy and the rule of law. The mostly secular and liberal opponents of the law, that includes business owners, military reservists and veterans, vowed to continue the fight to protect Israel's democracy. But Israeli activists, opposed to the extremist coalition's agenda to weaken the Supreme Court's ability to act as a check on government power, have largely ignored the struggle of the Palestinian people for basic human rights and self-determination. In recent months, violence between Palestinians, the Israeli military and radical settler groups, has been on the rise as the government expands illegal settlements. At the same time, Palestinians living in the occupied West Bank in East Jerusalem face an increase in home demolitions and forced evictions, leading some observers to fear that Netanyahu's government could soon move to annex the West Bank. Your reporter spoke with Phyllis Benes, director of the new Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, who talks about the massive protests in Israel and the disconnect between these opposition activists and the oppression of the Palestinian people.
2: It's been an extraordinary thing to see this level of mobilization of Israelis fighting for how they define their democracy. And it is a real fight. It's, you know, the the rights of LGBTQ people, the rights of non-Orthodox Jews, the rights of secular Jews, the protection of the environment, a whole host of things are at stake here. There's no question about that. and we're seeing that in the numbers of people, I mean, there have been hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets. Apparently it was some tens of thousands, 30 or 40,000 people who marched over the weekend from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is a very long march. Uh, it would mean going 25 or so miles every day for three days, something like that, uh, over not small hills. So this was a, you know, it's a very big mobilization. It's it's like half the country that is engaged in this fight. And for many people, it, they see it as an existential threat to their vision of what Israel was and is supposed to be. The problem is this level of protest is very limited to that part of the repression that will come from the change in the uh, the role of the of the Supreme Court, the lack of independence of the of the judicial system, the threat to Israel's internal Jewish democratic systems all of that is very real, and the reason that there are so many hundreds of thousands of people in the street, the reason that you have three hundred thousand instead of three hundred is because they have refused very consciously this is not an accident. There was a very clear decision made at the beginning of these protests seven, eight months ago, that there would be no mention of the occupation, no mention of Israeli apartheid, no mention of international law violations, that this would be focused solely on that part of the Israeli democratic threat, which applies and would impact Israeli Jews. So that's where there's this huge contradiction in the extraordinary level of mobilization that we're seeing in the streets that's become an international phenomenon, and the ability of these hundreds of thousands of Israelis to absolutely ignore, keep their mouths shut, refuse to acknowledge what this shift of the lack of of any kind of uh, accountability could mean in terms of making the already horrific situation facing Palestinians living under military occupation in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, Palestinian citizens of Israel, the 20% of Israelis who are not Jewish, who will be impacted far more brutally than the Jewish Israelis uh, who are in the streets. And their ability to put that aside really speaks to the success of the Israeli culture of apartheid, culture of occupation, culture of colonialism, that has affected the entire jewish population essentially so that the number of incredibly brave and creative and smart jewish opponents of israeli settlements of uh, occupation of apartheid incredible people but could fit in my living room unfortunately that there are just so few of them this is what we're what we're looking at uh, and it's an extraordinary and very sad reality given what this level of mobilization could mean if it took into account the real threats, the real indications of the non-existence of a democratic reality in Israel.
0: In your recent article, as we've been discussing, views of many Americans toward the Israel-Palestine conflict are changing with a realization that Palestinians' human rights needs to be a key part of U.S. foreign policy. There was a recent development in an article by Nicholas Kristof. He talked about two former U.S. ambassadors to Israel, Dan Kutcher and Martin Indyk. And they talked about how they feel it's time now for the U.S. to reconsider this unconditional billions of dollars of aid that go to Israel every year. How significant is this, Phyllis?
2: This is huge. This is one great example. It's one. I mean, it's, you know, all of these examples of 500 former Biden staffers, the 25 senators, the 12 House members, each of them is important in their own right. Together, they show this massive shift that's underway. The fact is, in my view, there's going to have to be a shift in U.S. policy. And that's why the movement for Palestinian rights here in the United States is so important, because it's U.S. policy that is making it possible for the Israeli government to continue its denial of Palestinian rights, to continue its oppression of Palestinians, to continue maintaining the dual legal systems in direct violation of international law without any accountability. As long as that goes forward, it doesn't matter how many presidents come out and say, we are very concerned about the apparent diminishing of of Israeli democracy, doesn't matter what they say, as long as they continue to send the money to protect Israel at the United Nations, to make sure that Israeli officials are never held accountable at the International Court of Justice, to make sure that most countries are too intimidated of possible U.S. retaliation to do anything in the United Nations General Assembly, as long as those things continue... And it doesn't matter very much what the U.S. says. It can be a little embarrassing. Maybe it loses Netanyahu or somebody else a little bit of his support at home. But it's not the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is what the U.S. does.
0: That was Phyllis Bennis, director of the new Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Find a link to her recent Nation magazine article titled, On Israel and Palestine, U.S. Electeds Are Out of Touch with Their Own Voters, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The fight to stop construction of what would be the largest lithium mine in the U.S. on land in northern Nevada, that's sacred to two indigenous groups, has become the latest rallying cry for environmental justice. The mineral lithium is used to make rechargeable batteries for cars and many other products. Some groups that oppose fossil fuel extraction either support the mine or have remained silent on this issue, but indigenous organizations have rallied to the cause. Will Falk, an activist and attorney, organized a protest camp at Thacker Pass, Nevada, in January 2021 to oppose the lithium mine on the same day the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, issued its final approval of the project. He co-founded the group Protect Thacker Pass and is representing two tribes trying to stop construction of the mine. The group's goal is to protect Thacker Pass for the inherent inalienable value of its land, water, biodiversity, and cultural importance. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Falk about opposition to the mine and the importance of the 1872 mining law that governs the extraction of valuable minerals on federal land.
3: The Thacker Pass Lithium Mine Project is a project uh, sponsored by uh, the Lithium Nevada Corporation. It was a project that was uh, fast-tracked under a Trump-era secretarial order, which forced the local Bureau of Land Management Office to permit this mine in less than a year. It is or would be the largest lithium mine in the United States and the largest open-pit lithium mine in the world. The United States Government Accountability Office um, has issued studies that say that these kinds of projects usually take between three and a half and four years to permit, but the Thacker Pass Lithium Mine Project uh, was permitted in less than a year. Because they, they were moving so fast to uh, permit this project, they made a number of mistakes. Those mistakes have been challenged by a local rancher in the area Uh, four regional environmental groups, and now uh, Native American tribes. I've represented the Reno Sparks Indian Colony and the Summit Lake Paiute Tribe, um, but the main problem the tribes have with the project um, is that the Bureau of Land Management did not consult with any tribe uh, prior to issuing the, the Thacker Pass permit. And because they did not consult with any tribe prior to issuing the permits. They failed to recognize that Thacker Pass is a very sacred place to Paiute and Shoshone people. Um, they failed to recognize that it's the site of two massacres. The Bureau of Land Management has refused to delay construction um, or um, postpone the mine's operations so that they can engage in meaningful consultation with the tribes about how to deal with the fact that there's this massacre site in Thacker Pass.
1: Is the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, the final decision maker on this project? Are there any other federal agencies involved?
3: This project is happening uh, exclusively on federal public land administered by the Bureau of Land Management. There is a law, the 1872 uh, General Mining Law, uh, that was indeed passed in 1872, It offered uh, really cheap uh, mining leases and permits to American prospectors that located valuable minerals on public land. But that law says that the highest and best use of American public land is mining. So it doesn't matter if Native Americans say that this place is the most sacred place in the world to them. Um, If a mining corporation finds valuable minerals under that land, under American law, the federal government has to issue that mining corporation a permit, and they have a right to mine that land.
1: Does the company have to consult the indigenous tribes in the area?
3: Uh, The company does not have any obligation to consult with tribes. Well, the government, uh, when they consult with tribes uh, or, or the public in situations like these Consultation is merely uh, checking a box of saying we sat down and heard your concerns. They only have to even respond to the concerns as long as the agency deems those uh, concerns to be what they call substantive, as long as those concerns pertain to some aspect of the project that they have an obligation to uh, consider But the government does not have to change projects based off of these consultation, and they certainly do not have to um, deny a permit based off of, say, the tribes saying, you know, we absolutely do not want this
1: project. Will Falk, this is not a fossil fuel project. It's a project deemed essential for electrifying everything. People say there are trade-offs, and in this case, too bad for the indigenous people. What do you say about that?
3: Let me be very clear. It's absolutely essential that... Um, We cut fossil fuel emissions and and greenhouse gas emissions. No one opposing the Thacker Pass lithium mine uh, disputes that. But I would take umbrage with the notion that this is not a fossil fuel project. This is absolutely a fossil fuel project, and fossil fuels are absolutely essential to mining any sort of mineral, lithium included, A premise of the uh, whole alternative energy movement is that these so-called alternative energies are going to replace fossil fuels. Uh, When your whole mining process completely depends upon fossil fuels, it's unlikely that you're actually going to replace fossil fuels by these kinds of projects.
0: That was Will Falk, an activist and attorney who organized a protest camp opposing the construction of a lithium mine in northern Nevada. Learn more about opposition to the Thacker's Pass Lithium Mine Project by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the final week of its last term, the U.S. Supreme Court's extremist right-wing majority issued a succession of regressive rulings that included striking down a Colorado non-discrimination law that made it illegal for businesses to discriminate against LGBTQ customers, effectively ended affirmative action in college admissions, and blocked President Biden's plan for student debt relief that would have benefited some 40 million borrowers. In response to the High Court's decisions, a new national Gen Z and millennial-led movement, Get Free, organized three days and two nights of protests and civil disobedience actions the second week of July outside the Supreme Court in U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. The group says it seeks to center young people in the fight for freedom from rising authoritarianism and supremacy pushed by the Republican Party nationwide and their political appointees in the federal courts. Your reporter spoke with Nicole Cardi, executive director of Get Free, who discusses the main objectives of her group's recent protests in Washington and the challenge of mobilizing young people to confront the multiple urgent crises facing today's younger generation.
4: We had a lot of goals when we were in D.C. The first thing is to connect the dots between the different rulings that were coming down. They're not just one off Um, The rulings that happened this session, as well as Roe and others from last Supreme Court are really built around taking away our freedoms. They're trying to rewrite the 14th Amendment, try to create a sort of norm in which we ignore inequality, can't look at it, don't look at disparity, um, and therefore can never fix it. Uh, And what that really is, is maintaining and propping up hierarchies that just go to benefit the wealthy white few who are holding on to power um, very strongly right now and trying to rig the rules further in their power to control uh, the country for the next generation. They're doing this because they see our generation, millennials, Gen Z, um, the youngest, um, most diverse generation in American history coming of age. And they know that the numbers aren't on their side, They that our generation wants a future where freedom and equality are for all. And so they're taking out every tool in their toolbox in order to lock us out of power and hold on to the status quo, which benefits them, and try to erase history. So that's part one what we were trying to do. Part two what we were trying to do is be clear about the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court is not just, you know, umpires calling balls and strikes. The Supreme Court right now is really been captured by this faction that is trying to prop up these rules to benefit themselves. And so six of the nine justices on the court have been handpicked and courted and bought by the Federalist Society in order to move this agenda. So we're trying to reframe how people understand the court as not just, oh, they're conservative, oh, like maybe I'm angry at them and they don't do things that I agree with, into a position where they understand that this court is actually going against Americans. It's going against the Constitution. It's going against any promise of creating equality and freedom in this country. So they are at odds with our very core mandates. And then the next thing we were trying to do in going from the court to Congress was really to ask our congressmen, which side are you on? Are you on the side of this faction um, that is passing laws of supremacy, trying to keep us out of power? Or are you on the side of the future um, about of multiracial democracy and doing the things that are necessary for us to have a country that actually works for everyone
0: as you 've been talking about, the focus of get free is mobilizing young people. Your generation is facing multiple crises. The authoritarian fascist Republican party is now attempting to dismantle democracy in plain sight. Mm-hmm. They certainly have an explicit desire to turn back the clock 100 years on civil mm-hmm. and human rights and the climate crisis, which is threatening life on planet Earth as the fossil fuel industry and politicians collude on blocking substantive policies to mitigate climate change. And then, of course, there's record inequality in the U.S. not seen since the Gilded Age, with the super rich accumulating power while the rest of us are losing ground, especially the younger generation, which likely won't be doing as well as their parents, economically speaking. With, with all these challenges, Nicole, what are the techniques that you're using to get young mm-hmm. people involved, not just in voting once every couple of years, but to actually get engaged and involved in what's going on uh, in their community, in their state, and in national mm-hmm. politics?
4: You talked about a lot of crises that kind of are a bit whack-a-mole, right? You have police brutality and climate crisis and um, et cetera, et cetera, ending abortion, fascist Republicans. One tactic that we have at Get Free and what we're trying to use is actually connecting the dots between all of these different seemingly separate issues rather than only looking at the whack-a-mole pieces that we have been looking at and organizing against just the most immediate crisis take a step back view and create understanding and do action that actually unites a lot of these issues together and grounds them in our history and really asks the most important question, which is, are we going to create a world, a country where we're equal and free, or are we going to let these lies continue to play on us, divide us against each other, And really hold some people in permanent positions of, you know, being subclass. The reason why it feels so bad right now is because we're actually so close to winning. You know, we've transformed the narrative. We have won the culture. People agree with us. People want a better future. Um, Our numbers are many. And so... Taking action and voting and the combination of those things really shows our power. It just takes us deciding that we're going to be the grown-ups and take charge of our own destinies.
0: That was Nicole Cardi, executive director of the Gen Z and millennial-led activist movement, Get Free. Learn more about the group and its agenda by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, WDRT in verroca Wisconsin, KMWV in Salem, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Ta. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.